we are doing our final sermon in our American Gods series where we have been arming you to understand the philosophies that rule our world and that compete with Christ. Today we are talking about psychology and self-help. The science, if you want to call it that, the field of psychology is hugely influential and has had a profound impact on how absolutely everyone in this room thinks on how our church operates, on the patterns of thought that define our lives. To prove this, I want to start with a question that will push everyone here to the very limits of your observational powers. How many of you have noticed that I am in fact wearing a shirt? All right. How many have you noticed that my shirt is in fact lit? I'm wearing the most awesome shirt in this room, I think. I, don't, I do not see a better one. Not even Lucas Jones today wore a better shirt than me. Let's go through an imaginary scenario involving my shirt just to show you how much the lingo and thought patterns from psychology and from self-help have permeated our everyday lives, how much you use them, whether you're aware or not. So let's say someone, let's say Lucas or Leo, comes up to me after church. They want to tell me how awesome my shirt is. They would be giving me positive reinforcement, a term from psychology. Now, if I thought that they were lying to me, if I thought, oh, I couldn't actually be wearing a good shirt, that might be because I have an inferiority complex. Another term we get from psychology. Or maybe nothing can make me happy because I am in the throes of depression. And the reason that Leo or Lucas came up to compliment me on my awesome shirt was because they have great empathy. Or maybe they have great emotional intelligence. Leo's nodding like, yeah. <laughs> maybe they actually hate the shirt. They walk up to me to criticize it, but I sense that they're coming to criticize it. And so before they can even get there, I walk away. That would be a defense mechanism. Depression, empathy, emotional intelligence, defense mechanism, all ideas from psychology. Maybe Lucas really doesn't like my shirt, but Leo likes it, and he, they're surrounded by a bunch of people who are like, yeah, Nathan, what a great shirt, I love the lemons. Lucas might choose to lie and say that he likes my shirt, even though he doesn't. Why? Because of groupthink, because of group dynamics, psychology. Maybe Lucas actually thinks that he's wearing a better shirt than me because he has a big ego and a lack of self-awareness. Two more terms we get from psychology. Maybe he thinks his shirt is great because of confirmation bias. Maybe I tell Lucas, I'm going to come to your house. You've got this weird fixation on my shirt, dude. We need to talk about this. Lucas is really triggered by this, and he has a fight-or-flight response. Maybe he had a really bad experience with someone confronting him of a shirt-related issue earlier in his life, and so he has post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Maybe I get to his house and I say, in order to cure your PTSD, Lucas, we're going to do a little role-playing. Maybe Lucas is too shy to role-play because he's an introvert. But I think it'd be fun because I'm an extrovert. 
Maybe, I'm like, ah, Lucas is never gonna say that he likes my shirt. So I go home to my wife who offers me lots of affirmation. Maybe she also affirms our kids because she knows that she needs to bond with them. Bonding, affirmation, these things all come from the world of psychology. Now maybe she came to her belief in bonding with her children through rational thought, but maybe it was just an intuition. Why am I doing this whole hypothetical thing about my shirt? Am I being passive aggressive? Maybe I don't even know why I'm doing it. Maybe it's just something in my subconscious. Or maybe I'm just neurotic. <laughs> Whether you use any of these terms or not, you probably accept a lot of those ideas as valid. Maybe you don't like some of the language. Maybe you do, but most of those things, like passive aggression, like you know what it is, what passive aggression is, what depression is, like the subconscious. How many of you, people here have used Noom or a weight loss app like that? How many people have used a weight loss book of any type or, or video or anything? How many of you have read a Jordan Peterson book or watched a Jordan Peterson video or watched a YouTube video on how to be more successful at the workplace? Or maybe when you were having your first child, you watched videos that the hospital made you watch about how to be a better parent, not just how to buckle the thingy, but how to love and bond with your child. All these ideas come to us from the world of psychology. Psychological insights and ideas inform how we parent, how we are at church together, how we talk to each other, how we are in the workplace. Like, this is all a huge part of our lives. Again, whether we use the specific terminology or not, our minds have been shaped by a lot of these ideas. But here's the, the wrinkle. Abraham, Moses, Jesus even, would not have been familiar with these terms, right? They wouldn't have thought in terms of depression. Now, maybe they would know what it was to be depressed. Maybe they would know that there's a thing that feels like passive aggression. But all the different terms, the things subconscious, whatever, they wouldn't have used any of that. All these ideas, all this whole framework of thinking about our mind and how it works, a lot of these ideas are really pretty new, historically speaking, within the last few hundred years. Let me ask a few really basic questions before we really get going today. Number one, what is psychology? Number two, why is psychology? Why is it a thing? And number three, how do we as Christians feel about it? Well, number one, what is psychology? Psychology is the study of the human mind and human behavior. A psychologist is just someone who is an expert in why people do what they do, what they, how their brains work how their minds work, how their behavior works, and how to change that behavior. Now, you might, when, I don't know, when I think of a psychologist, I think of somebody sitting across from you and you're on the couch and you're saying things, right? But that is actually a specific kind of psychologist. Like anybody who's an expert in the human mind might call themselves a psychologist, but a psychotherapist or a psychoanalyst is the guy that's gonna get you on the couch and ask you about your parents. A psychiatrist, that is another term that is distinct, a psychiatrist is a type of psychologist who wants to talk to you and help you, but a psychiatrist is also a medical doctor. A psychiatrist can prescribe pills. So that's psychology. Psychology is just the study of the human mind, human behavior, why we do what we do, and how to change it if we don't like it. Why does this field exist? Why is it a thing? Well, because it's hard to know yourself, and it's hard to change yourself. And everybody wants, on some level, to know themselves and 
to change themselves. And, and psychology is just the world's way of answering these questions and thinking about these things. How do I know who I am? How do I change? How do I understand other people? That right there kind of opens up the can of worms in terms of how we as Christians might feel about this because we know the Bible has an awful lot to say about who we are and how we understand ourselves and how we understand other people and how we change, right? We know the Bible has a lot of answers, but where it gets kind of complicated is, does the Bible have all the answers? I mean, we know nobody in here, I think, is going to deny that the Bible has the big important answers, but can the study of psychology be helpful in answering some of the kind of surrounding questions that we might have? Like, we know people have problems because of sin, right? But why do I have my particular sins? Why do you have your particular sins? Why is one person given to addiction issues? Why does one person want to eat too much? Why does one person have problems with their sexuality? It's like psychology attempts to answer these kinds of questions. What, what about trauma? What about conditioning? What about the past? What about the mind-body connection? If, if I, we, as a Christian, I believe I'm a body, I'm a soul, so the sins and weaknesses. Can a drug, something that alters the chemistry of my brain, help me? I will bet there's people in this room that cover a wide spectrum of thought on this. There's probably people who have been helped by some form of therapy or something that you might call psychology, a self-help book at the very least, which self-help, by the way, is just psychology's little cousin. Like most self-help books just take big ideas from psychology and make them simple and popularize them. So I'm, I'm sure people have watched videos on how to succeed in the workplace or how to be a good parent or whatever, right? And maybe some people here feel like their lives have been changed by some of this stuff. Maybe someone's been in some form of counseling or therapy or something, and it's really helped them. And maybe, I don't know this for a fact, but maybe there are people in this room who, as Christians, are really antagonistic, or at the very least, uncomfortable with the whole thing, because they're just kind of like, hey, there's sin, and there's Jesus, and there's the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And once we go down the pagan route of these ideas about how to change our mind and how to understand ourselves, we're really going to get away from what the Bible says. I know for a fact there are people in this room who've been very helped by psychiatric drugs who might say that those things have given them a new lease on life. I, I don't know, but maybe there's some people in this room who are really antagonistic towards that, who, who would say, uh, psychiatric drugs, they they solve the surface issue. They make you feel better, but they don't actually deal with what's in your heart, your sin, or other people's sin, you know, the real problems. I'm not going to be able to solve the problem of psychiatric drugs in this sermon. So let me, I'll just do a quick sidebar on that just to get this out of the way. Uh, the Bible says that there is a mind-body connection. So that's really important to remember as we talk about all this stuff, like what's going on in your brain what kind of chemicals you have in your body, uh, what your thyroid is doing. These things do matter an awfully lot to how we feel and to our spiritual condition. We are not disembodied souls. And so that's important to remember. I know people who I trust and who I love whose lives have been changed for the better by psychiatric drugs who would say, well, they really helped me. I was really depressed and I just needed something to get out of that. I, I have also, as many of us have, I'm sure, I've known people who have been just kind of zombified by, by drugs that 
it feels like, are given to them by cynical doctors who don't really want to get to the heart of the matter, who aren't interested in actually dealing with what's really going on, but just want to give them something so that they feel better. But I, like I said, I, I do know people who have been helped by them. So that's all that I want to say about that today. I think a lot of the other things I'm going to say will affect how we think about that. So you can draw your own conclusions. But this is a place where we need to have Christian discernment and charity towards each other. So where are we? Psychology is the study of the human mind. Just to recap, how it works, how it goes wrong, how to change it. We all, everybody in this room uses the ideas and lingo and framework of psychology all the time, whether they know it or not. But the question before us today, is it biblical? Is some of it biblical? Is some of it not? We need to answer that question. Well, in order to do that, I want to do a few things. Number one, I want to just trace very briefly, I do not want to turn this into a lecture on the history of psychology, but I want to just give about five big ideas from the history of psychology so we kind of have some handles to know what we're even talking about. And then I want to talk, of course, about what the Bible actually says about the self and self-improvement and how we change our behavior. So let me talk about, let me actually talk about five important dudes, five guys from the history of psychology and their big ideas. And I think you'll recognize a lot of the way that you think in the kinds of ideas that these guys have and the kinds of questions that they asked. So number one, René Descartes, mathematician and philosopher in the 1500s. Does anybody know what his famous catchphrase was? I think therefore I am. Yes, sir. I have no idea what that means. But René Descartes' big contribution, and in many ways he's the father of psychology because he's the first person to really ask, what is the connection between the mind and the body? We all, as, as Christians, and he would have been one of a, of a type, uh, we believe there is a soul. We believe there is a thinking, feeling, emotional thing over here. And then there's our bodies. And how do the two things go together? What is the relationship between the mind and the body? And, and, and am I me because of the body I walk around in? because of the chemistry in my brain, because of the environment that shapes me? Or is there a me that's beyond that? And if so, what is the connection? Like, how does that work? You can see how that opened. Rene Descartes did not have the answers to those questions, but just answering or asking those questions, it opens up avenues of thinking. Like, you begin to think, like, what is, what makes me, me? Am I born with what makes me me, or do I become what's me? Like, am I, when I'm born, do I already have a personality that God has given me and that's distinct from my body? It's in my soul somewhere, and my, my parents' job is just to figure out, oh, Nathan's like this, he's got these attributes. Or do I become who I am because my brain is shaped a certain way, because my environment is a certain way, because my parents treat me a certain way? Now, obviously, the answer is both, but just asking those questions really gets you thinking, and that sort of is what jump-started the history of psychology. And a lot of the other people that we'll talk about, we're only talking about five, but at least two more of them are just answering that question. So John Locke was an English philosopher in the 1600s, and he was what we call 
an empiricist, which means his sort of answer to the question of how do I become me, like where do I come from, is that every child is just born a blank slate. There is nothing really to you. You have no personality when you come out of the womb. But then things happen to you, and you are in a certain environment, and your parents treat you a certain way. Different things, there's different uh, stimuli in your environment. That makes you into the person that you become. And we could see that there's a lot of truth in that. Like, obviously, we know somebody born in the slums and somebody born in a mansion on Park Avenue are going to turn out a little bit different. But, but what in there is inherent? John Locke would say, nothing. You could see this influence the way that people think to this day. You know, you'll see, oh, if we want a kid to turn out a certain way, we just, we need to change the environmental factors. We need to get rid of poverty for children, make sure children have enough food, this sort of thing. And then they will turn out to be good citizens. But, but that doesn't really take into account things like sin, things like character traits that maybe you're born with. It doesn't take into account, you know, there's people who will never discipline their kid because they're afraid, well, if I discipline my kid, my kid will learn aggression. And my kid is just a blank slate. And so I don't want to introduce the idea of aggression into my child. And then somehow, as if by magic, their child will push another child on the playground. And they'll be like, where did that come from? I didn't write that on the blank slate. Maybe we're not just blank slates. Maybe we're born with some, some characteristics. Do boys act different, differently than girls? You, know, you see a study like this every couple years, you know, where people will say, actually, if you put a girl in a nursery and you don't do anything, and there's the doll over here and the toy gun over here, then the girl will, you know, it's, it's only because we've, we always give girls dolls that they become this way. And then you'll, you'll see studies released where they say, well, actually, the little girls do tend to go for the dolls. And then the next year, you'll see one where they're like, well, actually, it's just environmental factors. So that's John Locke. So we've got Rene Descartes. What is the mind, the body? John Locke, we are all a blank slate. And then we've got a guy I'm sure you've heard of, Charles Darwin. Everybody heard of Charles Darwin? The, yeah, boo. <laughs> Father of evolutionary theory. Ch Charles Darwin was a highly influential psychologist in his way. He actually wrote books just about psychology. He answered Rene Descartes' question, what is the connection between the mind and the body, says Rene Descartes. Charles Darwin says, there is no connection because they're both the same thing because we're all animals, baby. We are machines. We can be conditioned. We can be medicated. We can be trained. We can be untrained. There is nothing fundamentally different about you than a pig, an ape. If we observe how we can change the behavior of those creatures, then we can learn things about how to change the behavior of these creatures. And if you have problems in your life, if there's things that you don't like about your, yourself, they're, they're just mechanisms. They're animal mechanisms, and they have to be treated and conditioned as animal mechanisms. And that is obviously, like, spoiler alert, that's not what the Bible says. But Darwin did open up, to be fair, a lot of interesting avenues of thought, places where we could look and see, okay, how does conditioning work? How does instinct work? And, you know, humans, we are made in the image of God. We are not animals. But we do have instinct. We do have conditioning. Like, you know, there are things that are similar about an ape and us. And you can observe things and learn things, right? 
and, and, and Darwin was the first one to say, we can do that. Number four in our five dudes from psychology, uh, the one you, maybe you were expecting me to start with, Dr. Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, the first guy to say, hey, we're in a really exciting time where we're learning all these things about the human mind. I should get some people into my office and we should talk. And if we talk long enough, maybe I can help them. So when you think of psychology, psychiatry, whatever, Dr. Freud invented that kind of thing. And he had a couple of really big influential ideas that probably in one way or another you all believe and I believe. Uh, number one, the unconscious mind. The idea that there's stuff beneath the surface of our conscious mind that we don't always think about. You might act a certain way and you don't know why you act that way. And maybe it has something to do with instinct or something to do with your past or something to do with all kinds of things. But there's this big stew of stuff that's you, and it's not all at the surface. It's, you don't even know yourself because there's all these things going on that you can't observe unless you pay some money and talk to a guy like Dr. Freud. The next thing that he came up with, which might sound really obvious, but one of the reasons it sounds obvious is because we're so downstream of it now, developmental stages. So he's just like, hey, every human being goes through stages, baby, and then they become a toddler, and then they become a this, and then they become a that. And we can trace predictable things through those stages, and we can see how if something gets messed up, if a, if a wire gets crossed in an early stage, it might really mess up something in a later stage. And the third thing that Freud's pretty famous for is something that we won't go into a lot, but sex. He just saw everything as sexual, a lot of the stuff that he came up with regarding that is so crazy that modern pagan psychologists would be like, whoa, no, we don't think that. But just his basic observation that, hey, a lot of human behavior is motivated by sexuality and our desire to have sex and the sexuality that we perceive in other people. He's not exactly wrong about that, right? And he, and he got, again, he understood something that I think we mostly probably in this room all take for granted now, but he, somebody had to say it which is, if something goes wrong early on, sexually, it can have a big impact later if someone is mistreated or abused or whatever. So that's Dr. Freud. Finally, Carl Jung was a disciple of Freud. And Carl Jung, whether you know it or not, you've definitely heard his ideas, because he was into something, he was kind of mystical and weird. He, he was actually consciously mystical. He was like, hey, we're being too sciencey over here with our psychology. Like, we're talking about the human soul, so let's think about it in a soulish kind of a way. Let's bring some spirituality back into it. Not, not in a good Christian way, but just in a, like, spiritual, whatever that is. And so he believed in the collective unconscious, that we all have these shared ideas that we respond to, ideas like mother, like father, like trickster, like mentor, like journey, like river. Like there, there are just these things that are primordial within us and we all respond to them. So I have my own mother and she is whatever she is, but I also have the mother, the eternal mother, the idea of mother in my, in my mind, right? And everybody's like that. And so there are these innate ideas that we all respond to, and we all kind of see ourselves in a story. And the question is, what part of the story am I in, and, and who am I in the story? Am I the mentor, and am I the trickster? Am I the hero? 
Am I the leader, the follower? Jordan Peterson, if anybody has watched a Jordan Peterson video, he is a Jungian psychologist. So he talks this way, you know, he'll say, oh, you, you gotta, you're, you're on a journey and there's a dragon and you gotta defeat the dragon, you know. And, and so that's, that's, that's a very Jungian kind of thing. Another thing that comes out of Jung, because he was into character and story and character types, personality tests. If anyone's ever taken a Myers-Briggs test, you know, am I intuitive? Am I feeling? Am I this? Am I that? Am I NF? Not NFT, but uh, one, of, one of those things. If you've ever taken one of those, that it comes from the work of Carl Jung, because he thought in terms of character and finding what type you are. Extroversion and introversion also come from him, because he saw people as, well, that person gets charged up by being around people, and that people, they're two different character types, right? There's the intuitive type, there's the thinking type, there's the extrovert, there's the introvert. And so he gave us a lot of stuff, a lot of categories that we all actually think in all the time. That is, I hope, a very brief and understandable crash course in some of the big psychological ideas that are with us to this day. I think whether you consciously think about those, there you go, consciously think about those kinds of things, you see that that's all kind of familiar, right? That's all sort of in the air we breathe. It's behind a lot of the things we assume about ourselves, right? Like probably one way or another, you've used ideas from these men or from their descendants. But, uh, you know, the question before us today is, should you? Well, let's answer that. What does the Bible say about the self and self-improvement? Obviously, a lot. Uh, let's just go through and answer some of the questions that these men raised real quick. So, so Descartes, he says, oh, are we a mind? Are we a body? How does that work? And Locke says, oh, we're a blank slate. And Darwin says, we're animals. They all want to know, like, who are we and where does our personality come from? Well, the Bible answers that pretty, within 27 verses, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then Genesis 2-7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Those two verses answer a lot of questions that psychologists have spent the last 500 years arguing about. Yes, Descartes, we do. We have a body and we have a soul that God breathed into it. Our body is, in some sense, material. It's made out of dust. But we have this thing that animates us, that makes us a living creature. No, Darwin, we're not just animals. We're made in the image of God. No, John Locke, we're not just blank slates. Yes, it's true. We are very impacted by our environment and the things that happen to us. But we have a bunch of good gifts that have been given to us by God. Gifts like reason and intelligence and intuition and feelings and affection and love, things that make us in God's character. Awesome stuff. And we're born with that. God is God who loves order, but he also loves variety. So we see from the beginning the dichotomy between male and female. We see that there are different character traits that go along with each. We, we see that all throughout the scripture that God gives some people certain traits. He makes some people more thoughtful or more intuitive or more whatever. It gives people different gifts. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this. It is true. It is like observably true and also just in the scriptures observably true that we start with stuff. God makes us a certain way. We're not just blank slates, right? So I hope everybody can answer this question. Where do our problems come from? Sin, yes. Our main problem in life isn't instinct or conditioning or our past or our unconscious mind or 
whatever, it's sin, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So our big problem is sin. And how do we fix our big problem? Anybody know? Yeah, the the most Sunday school answer of them all. Change comes through Jesus Christ. His work of justification on the cross, the work of sanctification accomplished by the Spirit in our hearts. Ephesians 4, 17, the Apostle Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And when you read a passage like that, you begin to see why people do find psychology to be problematic. It's a passage like that is kind of cut and dried, right? It's like, you have Jesus, so now put off your fleshly stuff. Put on the attributes of God. Like, time's a-wasting. What are you waiting for? And it's true. Like, it's, the Bible doesn't overcomplicate it, right? We are supposed to walk in Christ by the power of the Spirit. And Jesus is the answer to our problems. So I've answered the big questions. Yay! Does everybody feel satisfied? Should we sing our final song? No, I... I I hope you don't, because if the broad philosophy behind psychology is worldly, and it it is, it often is, usually is, a lot of it still feels pretty helpful. I mean, think of all the big ideas, the big five guys I talked about, and how they impact something. Like, if anyone ever has used Noom or read a book about weight loss or done any kind of fitness or weight loss, think about how many of these ideas filter into that. So, Rene Descartes, he says, we're... We're bodies, but we're also souls. And what's the relationship? Well, that's a really good question. Like, am I tempted to eat too many Cheetos because I have a bodily craving? Or is there something going on in my mind? And if so, what? And what's the relationship? Answering that question, really helpful. Jean Locke says, Nathan, you just need to change your environment. Hey, a lot of people have lost a lot of weight by doing that. Like, I'm just not going to introduce Cheetos into my environment. Now... I'm better. I'm going to use smaller plates. This is a Noom one, if anyone's ever used Noom. I'm going to introduce a smaller plate into my environment so that I am, you know, portion control or whatever. That doesn't work because I'm like, you're tricking me, Nathan. I know this plate was... But Darwin says there's part of me that's like an animal that can be conditioned. I don't like being called an animal. I don't think he's right about that, but are there instincts? Are there, is there, you know, is there a way that I can condition my body so that I like carrots instead of Cheetos? The answer is no. But it's nice to try, and you know, there are techniques like that 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 work for people. Uh, uh, Freud says, you know, we have have to look into your past. I don't do a German accent. Hey, it's true. Some people overeat because 
uh, I don't know, when they were young, the, the, the meal, the dinner was tense and everybody had to grab as much food as they could and they learned that they needed to sort of hoard food and something happened, something went wrong with their parents or with their family and now they have an eating problem and it's good to figure that out, right? Uh, Carl Jung says, you know, you need to find your mentor and slay the dragon of overeating. And for some people that can be really helpful to find, like, where am I in the story? Who's, who's the, the wizard that's going to help me on my journey to throw overeating into Mount Doom? So there are things that are helpful and that we get from psychology, right? Uh, you know, uh, things that work in parenting, like just the idea of positive reinforcement might be a little cheesy and we don't want to totally get rid of biblical discipline, but just observing like, if I compliment my kid, my kid will be happier. That's, that's a nice thing to observe, right? And it's not unbiblical. It is in the Bible, but hey, if a psychology textbook or a self-help book helps you get there, great. Uh, understanding that I'm an introvert, the introversion, extroversion, not categories in the Bible, but just understanding I spend time with people, my batteries are drained, I need to recharge. What a helpful thing to, to know about yourself, can really help you. Working through past trauma and abuse, the things that hold us back, the things that cause us to behave in bad ways can be life-changing. And, and so, so what do we do with that? We've got this stuff that is wildly unbiblical in some ways, but it's pretty helpful. It's so helpful that we've probably all adapted it without even thinking about it, whether we know it or not. Well, a couple answers to that question. Number one, modern psychology is pagan. Let's understand that. Where it draws us away from the truth that we are sinful and that Christ is the real answer and sanctification through the Holy Spirit is the real change, it is bad, full stop. Modern psychology also has at its center self-love. You've got to love yourself. But loving yourself is not actually what's going to solve your parenting or solve your marriage or, or anything else. Now, there is a sense in which we are creatures made in God's image and we need to understand our worth and our dignity before God. And if you were abused or something, if someone took that from you, if you do not have a sense of your own worth, then you do need to be given that. So. I'm not, that's not what I'm arguing against. But there is a kind of self-love, just love yourself, that's, that's not Christian, right? That denies agency, responsibility, sin, and selfishness. And we all have responsibility before God for our sins. We are all sinners, we are all selfish, and that is what's wrong with us. So, so let me say that about psychology first, but then still there are these helpful things in our modern understanding of the mind and how humans change. Can we use them? I think yes, with faith, with discernment. And one place that I would go for that is the greatest commandment, actually. Remember, Jesus says, uh, Matthew 22, 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We are meant to love God with our heart and with our soul and with our minds. And people will say, well, the heart means this and the mind means this and the soul means... And we could talk about that. But, but bigger picture, 
We're supposed to love God with every part of us, with our, with our feelings, our affections, our appetites, our intuitions, our will, our reason, our intellect, our physical bodies, everything. Here at Church of the King, we don't do a thing that I think is done in some wicked churches or some wicked Christian communities where they kind of say, well, your physical existence is over here and your social life is over here and your intellectual pursuits are over here and then your religious life is over here. And so you come to Sunday and you open up your religious life and you have it and then you put it back in the box and you go do the other things. No, it's all the religious life. It's all in the service of God. It's all to be sanctified and sacrificed to God. So we must get our bodies in order, get our thoughts in order, get our appetites in order, get our feelings in order. We need to understand why we do what we do. It's important that we understand ourselves so that we can serve God better. We need to change the things that hold us back, throw off every hindrance, as the writer of Hebrews says. And it's very easy to over-spiritualize that. And what do I mean by that? Uh, Over-spiritualizing it would be like, I have the Holy Spirit, therefore I will not eat any Cheetos. And I'll, I'll buy the Cheetos. They'll be right here in the pantry. But I am a Christian. I know I won't be tempted to eat those Cheetos because that's how sanctification works. The Holy Spirit will help me love my children even though I'm tired after work and I find them very, very annoying. I am a Christian. I will love my children. I've given my past all the bad things that happened to me to God. I don't have to think about it anymore. I don't have to deal with it because I prayed about it. I gave it to God. Now, here's the truth about all that. I shouldn't make fun of it. Like, it is true we need to give those things to God, and he needs to change our heart, but the Holy Spirit might help you eat, not eat Cheetos by working through you not buying Cheetos. Jesus might help you love your children by showing you you need to go to bed earlier so you can not be tired and annoyed when you see them. God might want you to give your past to him, not by saying, I give my past unto you, but by working through it, by having the humility to talk to somebody about it. And too many Christians are kind of like, like if you were a farmer and you were like, only God can make my crops grow. And so it would not be faithful for me to water them or weed them or take care of them in any way. Because I know that God is the one that makes them grow. No, that would be a very bad farmer who would end up with some very bad crops. You have to understand that one of the primary ways that God makes your crops grow is by working through and blessing you, watering, weeding, whatever. And in a similar way, only God can change our hearts. Only the Spirit can change our hearts. But that doesn't mean that faith is just sitting around and sort of in a spiritual way, just waiting for God to act. Faith is assuming that God has already acted, assuming that he is acting. So, therefore, Ergo, we are empowered to get off our, uh, up off our behinds and do what's necessary to change. And so my answer about psychology is that psychological principles can be very helpful in obeying God. If you make Noom into your religion, if you make Jordan Peterson into your religion, if you make your, your trauma therapy workbook into your religion, 
that is evil. If you accept all the presuppositions behind that stuff, that is bad. But if you get some handy principles and you use them by faith with discernment from some of those places, wonderful. We are embodied souls doing hard work and we need every help we can get. So no, I don't have a problem with using some of this stuff. We have to use it with discernment and with faith and we have to reject what's evil about it. Well, let me close with a few principles that can help us use it well. So first principle, truth begins with God. A lot, a whole lot of psychological insight is just pagans taking stuff that Christians have always known, that's always been in the Bible, and, and repackaging it and, and kind of making it sound like science somehow. And so like attachment theory is very popular right now. I think we've talked about this, Jake maybe has talked about this from the pulpit before. Attachment theory is very popular. You need to, you need to bond with your child. Well, we went through Proverbs a summer ago it begins, my son, give me your heart. God understands that we need to bond with our child. That is a prerequisite for being a good Christian. And it has been long before some dude came up with attachment theory. So truth begins with God. And you have to see that as you work through this stuff. Uh, number two, God gave you pastors and elders and leaders and older women in the church for your benefit, so use them. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Psychological work, psych work, is soul work. And it's unwise to do soul work without giving yourself to the men that God has placed over your soul. So does that mean never see a therapist, never get counseling, never do anything outside of the Bible? No. But do it in conjunction, under the direction of your pastors, your elders, people that you trust in church. That leaves me to my third point, which is kind of the same point. God gave you the church body for your benefit. Use it. Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Galatians 6, 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We are supposed to be here for each other. We're supposed to be helping each other work through things. At its worst, the dumbest thing that psychology and all this stuff can do is, well, one of the dumbest things, it can take things that God meant for us to find with each other through organic community, with the saints, with our family, and it can professionalize and compartmentalize them and put them in a little box where you go and you see your therapist once a week, you open up the box, you take out your problems, you put them back in at the end of your hour and you're done. You open up your box every time you're going through your, your workbook, every time you're talking to the one person, whatever. But, but what you don't do is actually deal with it with your family in an organic way which is its own form of coping. It isn't really how the mind works. Like most of these things affect us kind of organically, holistically. They affect us in all kinds of ways. We can't just compartmentalize and we can't pretend like only someone with a degree with doctor in their name can help us. Now, does that mean you just need to tell all your problems to everybody in this room? Does that mean that 
you should be unwise in who you talk to? Does that mean if you're having problems in your marriage relationship, you go talk to the single person? Or you have like trauma issues in your past, you go talk to the person who doesn't? No, God gave people different roles, different authority, different gifts. And you can use the church wisely, but use it. Start again by talking to your pastor. We are meant to do the work of our souls with our family one way or another. If that sounds scary or complicated, ah, I can't, you know, I don't want to open up about my thing. Well, whatever you're imagining that I mean by it, then you're, I'm, I don't mean that. If you're like, ah, well, I can't tell my whole women's group. Okay, cool. I don't, don't tell your whole women's group. That's not what I'm talking about. I just mean one way or another, this body is the body that God has given you to work through stuff. And so you're going to need to do that and not sort of protect yourself from this body, which is what, unfortunately, a lot of people do. Let me close with this. If you do have things to work through in your life, whatever, a problem, a behavior problem, overeating, undereating, past abuse, whatever kind of things we work through psychologically. Remember two equal and opposite truths about that. Uh, number one, the answers may be pretty complicated, and that's okay. We are desperately sick in our hearts as humans, and sometimes we do get our wires crossed. And especially, you know, I'm sure everybody's seen this dopey psychological analogy, like you take the sapling, the tree, and you tie a knot in it, and then it grows into a mighty oak, and it's still got a giant knot in it, and now nobody's ever getting that knot out. Well, that's how the past can work, right? If people had a bad dad or abuse, or someone called them a name at the wrong moment in their life in gym class, or whatever, we can sit on those things, and as the years go by, they can become more exponentially more difficult to untangle. And it's even more complicated because there's always sin in there, unlike what a lot of modern psychology tells us. Maybe you began overeating because you had a feeling of worthlessness from your parents. But unlike what modern psychology might tell you, you're still responsible. God still calls you to self-control. But that self-control may be harder because of things that happen to you. And so trying to muscle through it, to pretend, that's not the way to heal. You, and, and as Christians, while we must have great faith in Jesus Christ, we do not get to just put a Jesus band-aid over things, say we've prayed or we went to church and we're all better. Sometimes you need help. And that doesn't make you a worse sinner than anyone else. Everybody has stuff they need help with. That's why the body is here. So be humble and get the help that you need. There's no virtue in pretending to be okay when you're not. There's really no virtue in that. See when things are too complicated for you to deal with by yourself. So that's one truth. It may be complicated, and that's okay. The other truth is the answers may be complicated, but the steps are oftentimes pretty simple. Maybe you'll come to a new understanding of, you know, I have trouble with such and such because my father didn't show affection to me. And, did it. and the step you'll need to take is, now I will hug my kids. Now I will read my Bible. Now I will go to church. Now I will listen to the preaching of the word. Don't despise the simple ways that God works. Even when you're doing a big, complicated 
thing, especially through his church. I've had some thorny things to untangle in my life, and they have been thorny. And, and if I had just said, I'm going to muscle through and go to church and read my Bible, and that's all there is to it, that would have been bad. I needed help. I needed to talk to people. I needed to work through things over time. But when I did that, what I often found is then God would say one way or another, go to church, read your Bible, love people, show up. So don't despise the simple steps that lead to healing, even as you work through complicated issues. There are a wide variety of behavioral modification techniques out there. Some of them are more godly than other, others, but realize that apart from God, no matter what techniques you master, it's all cope. We need to understand that real change that lasts comes from faith in a father who loves you and a son who died for you and a spirit who empowers you. So let's start there and then let's use whatever tools God gives us with discernment, with faith, to work through the things that we need to. Let's pray.